Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fielding in the North Island of New Zealand, and was personally requested by my oldest son, Cody. Full disclosure, this is not a simple case and will be two episodes. With that, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On December 21st, 1978, Scott Guy was born to his parents, Brian and his mother, Joe. He was the second in the line of four children with an older sister and a younger sister and brother. Scott and his siblings grew up on Beerburn, which was the family farm, and it sat on a whopping 500 plus acres in fielding. From a very young age, Scott worked on the farm with his dad. Joe told the Otago Daily Times that Scott loved animals and people. He was just a real farm boy. Scott was one of those people who was born an extrovert. He was outgoing and perpetually social, so it's no surprise that he was never short on friends. A friend he became particularly close with as a teenager was another teen named Ewan McDonald, who also worked on the farm. Ewan had grown up around fielding. While other kids grew up wanting to be doctors and veterinarians, Ewan wanted nothing more than to be a farmer. While he was able to work part-time on the farm during his early years, he wasn't offered a full-time position until he was 16. When that time came, Ewan dropped out of school, and according to the New Zealand Herald, he never really left the farm after that. At that point in Ewan's life, he and Scott were the definition of best friends. They played on the same rugby team, went surfing together, and enjoyed a little possum hunting. You like what you like. Because they were spending so much time together, it wasn't long before Ewan started dating Scott's sister, Anna, which didn't turn into any kind of beef. Scott was 100% on board with it. Ewan and Anna's relationship was the real deal. So when they married in 2001, Scott stood beside Ewan at the altar as his best man. Scott's best friend was officially his brother-in-law. According to the New Zealand Herald, following the wedding, Ewan stayed on the farm living a quiet and simple life. As the years passed, he and Anna welcomed four children. While they were doing that, Scott decided to study agriculture at a university and took off to Australia to work on another farm. Australia didn't last long, and in 2003, Scott moved back to the family farm in New Zealand. It wound up being a solid move because later that year, he met a young woman named Kylie after competing in a rodeo, hashtag farm life. Kylie later testified, from the moment we met, we just couldn't be apart. Scott was one in a million. There was no question in her mind that Scott was her soulmate. They were best friends. Scott and Kylie were also the real deal, and the two got married in 2005. Following their wedding, Scott continued working on the farm with his best friend slash brother-in-law, Ewan. In 2006, Scott's parents, Brian and Joe, decided to start stepping back from farm operations. The two couples, Scott and Kylie and Ewan and Anna, were each given a 10% stake in the farm while Brian and Joe kept the other 80%. They started holding shareholder meetings where they would discuss farm operations, the future of the farm, etc. The New Zealand Herald reported that Brian later testified that Scott and Ewan both wanted to be the boss, 
so he gave them their own areas to manage. Scott was put in charge of crops and calf rearing, while Ewan was in charge of dairy. Both men earned around 100000 a year as farm managers, so they were pretty comfortable. But things weren't always smooth, and in time, the best friend vibe seemed to veer off towards animosity. Scott's older sister Nikki testified that Ewan and Scott had a difference in personalities. Scott was all about the big picture, while Ewan was more task-oriented, neither of which are bad, just different vantage points. Anna described Ewan as a perfectionist who liked things to run smoothly. She felt like Scott and Ewan weren't great at communicating with each other, and Anna was the one who would have to speak up about issues. Another issue was that Ewan felt the workload wasn't even between him and Scott. Ewan worked long hours, while Scott didn't always work as many. With four kids and a wife, Ewan barely got to spend any time with them because he was always working. In 2008, Scott and Kylie welcomed their first child, which was a son. Scott's mother, Joe, told the Otago Daily Times that Scott loved his family more than anything. Scott would make it a point to leave work early to spend time with Kylie and their son, which naturally upset Ewan even more when it came to the difference in workload. That same year, Brian and Joe decided they were going to move out of the family home on Beerburn and into a house located off of the farm. They offered to sell their house to Anna and Ewan's family of six, who gladly accepted. Unfortunately, Scott was pretty upset that he wasn't offered the house. Joe later testified that she wasn't sure exactly why Scott was upset, but she assumed it was because it had been the home he'd grown up in. Scott asked his dad to schedule a shareholder meeting. According to the New Zealand news publication Stuff, Scott harshly criticized the family farm operation at that meeting. And for the first time ever, Scott brought up wanting to inherit the farm from his parents. Brian was surprised by this since no one had ever given Scott the impression that he'd inherit anything. Brian reminded Scott that he himself hadn't even inherited that farm. He had to buy out his father. So if Scott wanted the whole farm, that's what he'd have to do as well. Brian later testified that by the end of that meeting, he felt like he'd put the issue to bed, they had talked about it frankly, and everyone moved on. Brian said that within a year of the meeting, everyone seemed to be getting along really well. With Anna, Ewan, and their four children living in the family home, Scott and Kylie decided to build their own house on Beerburn, located 1.5 kilometers or just under one mile away from Ewan and Anna's. When the home was finished, it was this gorgeous, sprawling, 2,700-square-foot house that had four bedrooms and two baths. Scott, Kylie, and their little son were able to move into the new house in the spring of 2009. Within a year of the move, Kylie was pregnant with their second son, and the two could not have been happier. Months later, in June of 2010, Brian, Joe, Scott, and Ewan attended an out-of-town conference together. Stuff reported that Joe later testified the goal of the conference was to figure out the future of the farm. While the farm was very successful, it wasn't able to sustain incomes for all three families on top of all of their employees, which certainly does pose a problem. From everyone's testimonies, it seems like the conference went as well as it could. There were no fights or disagreements. Scott even called Kylie multiple times to tell her how much he was enjoying it. Brian testified that he and Joe came back from the conference with several ideas on how they could bring more money into the farm. Their ideas included building a recreational lake, which in some reports has been described as a water park. 
They also thought about leasing parts of the farm or share milking, which is a form of share farming. Their other idea was to have Ewan or Scott leave their position at Beerburn and manage a different farm. Brian and Joe spoke openly with Scott and Ewan about their ideas. Scott, the big picture guy, was excited about the water park, while Ewan, the task-oriented one, whose lifelong dream had been farming, was pretty worried because he didn't want to leave the farm. He wanted to stay and run the dairy side of things. After hearing Ewan's concerns, Anna spoke to Joe about everything. Joe said not to worry, nothing was going to change, no one had to leave the farm. Anna told Ewan, and that seemed to ease his concerns. For the next few weeks, everything seemed fine between all three couples. Stuff reported that Scott's older sister, Nikki, later testified that she thought Scott and Ewan's relationship was doing better. She said, I noticed the last time I talked to Scott, he didn't say anything about Ewan at all. Anna testified that she and Ewan had never been more happy. Ewan was working less and was able to spend more time with her and the children. But on July 8th, 2010, everything came crashing down. That morning, shortly after 7 a.m., a man named David, who lived on the same street as Beerburn, was passing by Scott's driveway when he noticed Scott's ute, which is what we would call a pickup truck, was parked at the end of the driveway with the headlights on, and the ute was still running with the driver's side door open. That wouldn't seem too out of the ordinary, but the truck was at the end of his very long driveway by the open gate. It wasn't somewhere you'd park if you needed to go back inside and grab something, and Scott wouldn't have had to get out to open the gate since he and Kylie rarely closed it. The scene was so out of the norm that David pulled over and got out of his vehicle. That is when he found 31-year-old Scott lying with his legs apart in front of the ute. His arms were thrown back and his feet were towards the road. As he got closer, David noticed a massive wound to Scott's throat, and there was blood everywhere. David checked Scott's pulse, but he didn't have one. At 7.08 a.m., David dialed 111, the U.S.'s version of 911, and told the operator, my neighbor has had his bloody throat cut. He's dead. I think he's got his throat cut. He said it didn't look like Scott could be saved. The dispatcher asked if there was a weapon around, but David said he didn't see one, though he wouldn't be surprised if there was a knife lying around somewhere. While waiting for officers, David got back into his vehicle and locked the doors. He then called a neighboring farmer named Bruce. Bruce later testified that he rushed over and saw that Scott was dead. At 7.16, Bruce called Ewan and told him the news. Ewan had a hard time believing it and actually asked if he was joking, but he wasn't. Ewan jumped on his quad bike, which is like an ATV, and rushed over to Scott's house. By the time he got there, the police were just starting to show up. Ewan, who was distressed, got within 30 feet of Scott's body before officers told him not to get any closer. It was then that Scott's wife, Kylie, came out on the doorstep to see what was going on. The police told her to go back inside that there had been a bad accident. She did what she was told, having no idea that her husband was lying dead in their own driveway. 
At 721, Ewan called Scott's father, Brian, who was at home at the time. Stuff reported that Brian later testified that when he answered the phone, Ewan was very distressed. He was almost incoherent. He said something had happened to Scott. I remember him saying, his face, you better get here. And that was the end of the conversation. Brian wasn't sure if Ewan had actually seen what happened to Scott or if he'd just seen the aftermath. Brian rushed over to Scott's, thinking he had probably been in some kind of farm accident. When Brian got there, he found Ewan sitting on his quad bike on the side of the road. He was, quote unquote, very, very distressed, as he told Brian that someone had killed Scott. Of course, Brian couldn't believe what he was hearing because who would want to kill Scott? Brian wanted to see his son's body, but police told him no. If he couldn't do that, he at the very least wanted to be able to go inside and tell Kylie, who was seven months pregnant at the time, what had happened. Finally, they let him go. After breaking the unfathomably horrific news to Kylie, Brian had the soul-crushing task of calling his wife, Joe to tell her that her son, Scott, had been murdered. Joe and her daughter, Nikki, rushed to the scene. After speaking with police, Brian and Kylie were allowed to leave the house, but it wasn't easy. Since the driveway had been cordoned off as a crime scene, they had to climb over a fence to get out. Once they were out, the whole family left and went to the McDonald home where Anna was at. Anna was filled in about how Scott had been killed, and just like everyone else, she couldn't believe it. While the family tried to make sense of what was going on, Ewan left and went to tell the farm workers what had happened and also helped organize some things so the farm could keep operating that day. Farm town is small town no matter how big the farm is, and when news started to spread about Scott's murder, there wasn't a single person who could make any sense of it. This wasn't something that anyone saw coming at all. Three News spoke to multiple people who knew Scott, who all said he was well-liked and they couldn't imagine anyone wanting to hurt him. While everyone was trying to come to terms with the reality of all of this, investigators were busy processing the crime scene. It had recently rained in the area, so the ground was soft and a bit muddy in places, which can sometimes come in handy. Investigators were able to identify one set of tire marks that didn't match any of Scott and Kylie's vehicles. They were also able to count more than 50 footprints, which had a unique wavy sole. It wasn't possible to tell the order in which the footprints were made. All they knew was that the prints went around Scott's body, the ute or truck, and the front gates. The prints also headed towards an old shed where Scott was housing some Labrador puppies that he had for sale. Stuff reported that around the shed, there was another pair of footprints, which didn't match the wavy sole of the others. It looked like the person wearing the wavy soles climbed over the fence and got back on the road. The only problem was that while shoe prints will tell you where a person was, they don't tell you the order in which they were left. A forensic scientist would later examine them. The wavy soled shoes were found to be from a size 9 or 10 Pro-Line W375 neoprene dive boot, which can be used for scuba diving, hunting, and more. It almost looks like a thick sock with a sole. As far as the other pair of shoe prints from around the shed, the scientist wasn't able to determine what type of shoe left them. The gates to the driveway were processed for impressions, and this is a little different than simply looking for fingerprints. They're looking for anything that may have left an imprint on that gate. 
On a farm, you're going to see a lot of people wearing gloves, and that's exactly what they found. Investigators were able to recover eight impressions that came from riding gloves. Investigators looked over Scott's ute, but it didn't look like anyone had rifled through the inside. Scott's iPod and wallet were still in there. This didn't totally rule out robbery as a motive, but it certainly felt like it was moving in that direction. As investigators continued processing the scene, they found an empty pack of Winfield Gold cigarettes. There was a sticker on the pack saying the cigarettes had only been available since June 21st, which told investigators that the pack had been left recently. During their search, investigators did not find a knife, but they did find a shotgun wadding from a 12-gauge shotgun. The wadding of a shotgun shell is the little piece that separates the powder from the pellets, and finding it would indicate that a shotgun had been fired. That led detectives to theorize that Scott had actually been shot and not attacked with a knife. They continued looking over the scene, but they didn't find any shotgun shells. I actually spoke to a shotgun armorer who said that the wadding would be expelled while a shell would simply fall to the side of the gun when shot. Scott's autopsy concluded that he had been shot in the neck with a shotgun. The Otago Daily Times reported that Scott had a 5 by 2 inch wound to his neck, which extended from the left part of his chin to the right part of his voice box. He also had pellet injuries to his left hand and forearm. In total, more than 250 shotgun pellets were found in Scott's body. Plastic shotgun wadding was also found in his throat. There were no powder burns or contact wounds, which told the pathologist that Scott was shot from a distance of up to a few meters. The pathologist theorized that Scott had been shot once, which sounds a little ridiculous to me. I looked into the difference in pellet count between buckshot and birdshot, and it looks like the birdshot might be the only plausible explanation for the number of pellets found in his body, though the number of pellets still seems to be a bit high for one shot. The injuries to his hand and forearm came from Scott putting his hand up to block his face. However, contrary to the previous statement, the pathologist couldn't rule out that those injuries came from a second or third shot. And yes, that was as frustrating for you to hear as it was for me to write. According to Stuff, a different firearm forensic expert concluded that Scott was shot twice, the first time in the neck and the second time in the arm. The expert said that Scott could have been shot in the arm as he fell, or he could have already been on the ground. Regardless of the number of times, though, the shot to his neck was absolutely fatal. The pathologist estimated that Scott was dead within seconds. Detectives continued their investigation into Scott's murder. They went through his computer and found that before heading out to work in the early morning hours of the 8th, Scott used his computer to check Facebook and a few other things. At 4.41 a.m., he stopped using that computer. Through speaking with Kylie, detectives found that Scott was supposed to be at the milking workshop at 4.50 a.m. The workshop was located on Anna and Ewan's property, which was about a mile away from Scott and Kylie's. Based on that information, detectives theorized that Scott headed to work shortly after getting off his computer. They timed how long it would take Scott to stop using his computer, get in his ute, then drive to the end of the driveway. It took around two minutes, and this information told detectives that the earliest Scott could have been killed was 4.43 a.m. Stuff reported that detectives interviewed neighbors to try and narrow down when Scott was murdered. One neighbor said they were woken up by two shots in quick succession at around 5 a.m. 
The neighbor said he didn't hear any voices or vehicles, so he figured someone had just shot a possum, so he went back to sleep. Later, when he talked to his roommate, she said she heard three shots. The neighbor said he thought it was possible that he had been woken up by the first shot, then heard the second and third one. Another neighbor told detectives that he was woken up at around 5 a.m., though he wasn't sure what the noise was, so he went back to sleep. A different neighbor said that around 5 a.m., she heard a bang, which sounded like a shot. Not long after, she heard quad bikes, so she got up to look through the trees. Through the trees, she could see people and bikes. People and bikes being plural, which goes along with the two sets of shoe prints found on the property. Another neighbor said that around 5 a.m., she too heard three shots fired in succession. She listened but didn't hear anything else. So based on what neighbors were saying, it seemed pretty likely that Scott may have been killed closer to 5 a.m., not 4.43 a.m. It's a 17-minute difference, which might not seem like a lot, but the window of Scott's murder is small, so minutes count, especially 17 of them. Detectives continued interviewing people in regards to Scott's death, including his brother-in-law, Ewan, who was one of the first people on the scene. Ewan told detectives that he and Scott were alternating who would open up the milking workshop at 4.50. On the days where Ewan didn't open the shop, he'd sleep until 4.50, then start getting ready. He'd meet everyone down at the shop, which was behind his house once everything was ready to go. Ewan said on the night before Scott's murder, Ewan texted Scott to confirm that Scott was going to take the early shift. Scott said yes. On the morning of the 8th, Ewan woke up at 4.50 a.m. like usual. He didn't hear any quad bikes running, which told him that Scott wasn't there yet. So Ewan started getting ready. He told detectives that he wasn't worried that Scott hadn't shown up to work on time since Scott was often late for work. It was kind of a running joke around the farm. Ewan said that after getting ready, he went down to the shop and unlocked it. Then he sent a text and later tried to call Scott, but got no answer. Ewan and the team then got to work without him. Detectives later confirmed that Ewan turned off the shop's alarm at 5.02 a.m. He texted Scott at 5.03 a.m., then called him at 5.40. All of those timestamps seem to fit with his statement. This would mean that Ewan turned off the shop's alarm only two minutes after Scott was killed. The Otago Daily Times reported that Ewan said he was working when he received a call from their neighbor about Scott being dead. He rushed over to the scene and police told him not to get any closer, but he could see that Scott was dead. When Ewan was done recounting the events of July 8th, he told detectives that he'd been back on the property on the night of the 8th because officers had asked him to go over to Scott's and feed the Labrador puppies in the shed. When Ewan went to feed the puppies, he noticed that three were missing and told the guard at the scene before leaving. Scott's wallet wasn't missing, his iPod wasn't missing, but three of his puppies were. Detectives spoke to Kylie and confirmed that they had seven puppies the night before Scott was killed. She said they were selling the puppies for $700 each and had put flyers up around town. That was as late as the day before Scott was killed. Detectives asked Kylie and the rest of the family to keep the puppy information quiet for now, a piece of information no one else would know unless they were close to the investigation. 
Detectives also spoke with other beer burn farm workers. Stuff reported that one assistant manager, Simon, said he was at the milking workshop the morning Scott was killed. Simon got there and parked his car before Ewan showed up to unlock the shop. Simon said he and Ewan made a joke about Scott being late for work. Simon then asked Ewan if he'd called Scott and Ewan said he had but that he'd got his voicemail. Simon said he'd started his day at the milking shop, shifted some fences, and then he ate breakfast. Between 7 and 7.30, Ewan called Simon to say that Scott had been involved in an accident. Simon told detectives he did not go to the crime scene and he didn't ask what happened. Detectives spoke with another worker, Matthew. He said he got to the workshop between 4.40 and 4.50 a.m. on the morning of the 8th. He was supposed to be there at 5 a.m., but he wanted to show up early to impress Scott, who we know was supposed to get there at 4.50. Matthew told the police that he waited in his car for quite some time, but Scott didn't show up. Right after 5 a.m., Matthew saw Ewan leave his house, saying he looked like he had just woken up. Matthew watched Ewan grab the farm workshop key, unlock the door, and deactivate the alarm. Matthew said he, Simon, and Ewan then got to work milking the cows. Matthew said that Ewan left work after finding out Scott was dead. When Ewan came back to the farm, he was as pale as. And pale as is a quote. It didn't include a comparison, but it seems pretty clear that he was saying that Ewan was pale. Stuff reported that Matthew also told detectives that when he arrived at work between 4.40 and 4.50, he saw a car coming from the direction of Scott's property and he could only see the headlights. Then just after 5 a.m., he saw a second car coming from Scott's place. That car was a four-door sedan. And I'd like to point out again that there are two cars in this scenario, which is one more than one. Just like the shoe prints, like the people, and like the bikes. All plural words. Police did tell the public about the cars Matthew had seen, but were never able to identify the vehicles or the drivers. They never identified the tracks at the crime scene either. Based on everything they knew so far, investigators theorized that the killer, which is not plural, closed the gate so Scott would have to stop his truck and get out. Then they waited near the fence in the darkness to ambush Scott as he headed out to work. Sometime between 4.43 and 5 a.m., Scott drove down his driveway in the pitch black heading toward the workshop. The only light was from his headlights, which were on high beam. As he approached the end of the drive, he noticed that the gates were closed. Scott stopped his ute, then jumped out and opened the gates. At that time, he was shot twice by an assailant with a shotgun. Stuff reported that based on pellet strikes on fence posts and trees, a firearm forensic expert concluded at least one shot was fired from the fence at the side of the driveway. The assailant picked up the shotgun shells, walked around Scott's body and the ute, then went to the shed before ultimately fleeing. Although detectives now had a pretty good idea of what happened to Scott, they still weren't sure who the killer was. On July 11th, police were transparent with the public that they were stumped by the murder and had very few leads. Scott's family pleaded with the killer to come forward. The investigation continued and detectives descended the roads around Fielding. They questioned drivers, but they didn't get any solid leads. On July 21st, police decided to tell the public that three puppies had been stolen from Scott's property. 
They said they wanted to know if there was a link between the puppies and Scott's murder. But police never did find the puppies. And I'm obviously not a cop, but it seems like sharing the puppy details earlier on might have been a solid move. Like, do you know anyone who didn't have any puppies on the 7th and then had three on the 8th? Do you know anyone who got a Labrador puppy in the time surrounding the murder? That number isn't going to be astronomically high, but we are where we are. Detectives continued their quest for leads by looking into possible criminal associations or affairs with Kylie and Scott, but that was a dead end because there were none. Detectives did, however, learn that prior to Scott's death, there had been at least two alarming incidents on Scott's and Kylie's property. The Otago Daily Times reported that in 2008, after Kylie and Scott picked out the land to build their new home, someone burned down an old house that had been sitting on a trailer waiting to be moved off the property. It seemed like Scott wasn't too upset by the arson because he wanted the house to be moved anyway. But Scott was obviously a super chill guy because I'd be losing my shit if someone just burned down a house on my property. But that's just the first incident. On the night of January 30th, 2009, the new home Scott and Kylie were building was vandalized. Someone had smashed windows, walls, and plumbing with an axe. A fucking axe, you guys. Then they spray-painted the walls on the outside of the home. One wall had the words, fucking bitch slapper. Expertly spelled F-U-K-E-N, bitch, S-L-A-P-P-R. Whoever did it was by no means a genius. The New Zealand Herald reported that the damage was excessive, coming in at just under $14,000. Kylie and Scott were pissed about this one, and Kylie was so scared that she didn't even want to move into the house after the damage was repaired. But Scott helped her move past her fears, and they did move in. Because they didn't have any enemies, they figured that it was just a careless act of vandalism, which had been preceded by a fire. After learning about all of this ridiculous criminal shit that had taken place, detectives started to try and determine whether or not they were connected to Scott's murder. By the end of July, additional detectives were brought on to work on Scott's case. They continued interviewing people, including local burglars and other known criminals in Fielding. Ultimately, they ruled out the possibility that Scott's murder was a burglary gone wrong, partly because no one had taken Scott's ute, wallet, or iPod. But what about the puppies? Detectives also re-interviewed Ewan over the course of three days. By that time, they'd found out about the tensions between Ewan and Scott in the years prior to Scott's murder. In those interviews, Ewan was asked if he'd been responsible for the arson and vandalism on Scott's property. Ewan vehemently denied any involvement. He admitted there had been tension between him and Scott in the past, but that things had simmered down. Ewan provided a DNA sample and gave detectives a tour of the farm. He took them to the farm office, which was located on Ewan's property, and showed them that the farm's firearms were kept in a safe. The safe was opened, and inside was a 12-gauge shotgun and ammunition used by many of the farm workers. Remember, one witness said he just attributed the shots he'd heard to someone shooting a possum. Hearing gunshots on or near a farm is not unusual. I used to live by a farm, and it was constant. In the weeks leading up to Scott's murder, Ewan, Scott, Simon, Brian, and others had used the shotgun to scare off birds. In the weeks after Scott's murder, they'd used the shotgun to put down two cows, Rip, Bessie, and other Bessie. 
The shotgun was taken into evidence and sent off for testing. Stuff reported that the shotgun could not be excluded as the murder weapon used to kill Scott, however it wasn't a conclusive match. Shotgun shells are not like bullets. Bullets get striations that can be matched with other bullets fired by the same gun. Shotguns and shotgun shells do not have the same capability. The gun also couldn't be matched to the pellets found in Scott's body because no spent cartridges were left behind at the scene. However, part of the shotgun wadding found in Scott's neck matched cartridges belonging to ammo found in the firearm's gun belt, which was also inside the safe. With that being said, though, wadding is a part of every shotgun shell, and an endless number of 12-gauge cartridges would be a match. Following Ewan's three-day interview in late July, progress in the case slowed down, but Scott's family continued asking the public to come forward with information. In October, the police went on a local TV show to ask the public to call in with tips. The show ended up bringing in around 50 calls, all welcomed leads for the police to track down. Unfortunately, the case continued to slow over the next few months. In early February of 2011, police released images of the vandalism that had occurred at Scott and Kylie's home back in January of 2009. They said they were investigating the possibility that the vandalism was related to Scott's murder, which we already knew. They asked that anyone with information come forward. Steph reported that following the release of the vandalism information, a tipster called saying that the handwriting in the graffiti looked like the handwriting of one of their former employees, Callum Bow. On April 3rd, detectives went to interview Callan, and that tip was 100% accurate. He immediately admitted to vandalizing Scott and Kylie's home. Callum told detectives that he'd done it with none other than Ewan McDonald. Callum explained that he'd met Ewan when he, Callum, was a teenager working on Beerburn. Although there was a 10-year age difference, Callum and Ewan became friends. They liked going hunting and camping together. They also liked going on secret night missions. According to the Otago Daily Times, the missions started out being innocent. However, by the time Callum was in his late teens, they'd become more menacing. Callum told detectives that he and Ewan spent a lot of their time poaching deer. In 2007, they were caught poaching a prize deer from a farm. They'd been doing it for a while before they were caught, and they would kill the deer, then cut their heads off. They'd leave the carcasses behind, but take the heads and back legs with them. The heads I kind of understand in the fuckest up of ways, because of taxidermy or maybe wanting to keep the antlers for whatever reason, but I don't know why you'd take the back legs unless they were for meat, but I honestly have no idea what they were reportedly doing here. After they were caught, Ewan apologized to the owner and returned some of the deer heads, which is not a thanks kind of situation. Nonetheless, the police were never called and it seemed like everyone had moved on. But months later, in August of 2007, Ewan wanted to get retribution against that farm owner, so they went to the farm's main milk vat and dumped roughly 16,000 liters, or more than 4,200 gallons of milk, worth tens of thousands of dollars. But that's not all. Ewan and Callum also killed 19 of the farmer's calves with a hammer. 
Seven months later, in March of 2008, Callum and Ewan went back to that same farm and burned down a 120-year-old duck hunting lodge. And here it's hard not to see the similarity between the duck lodge being burned down on that farm and the house that was burned down on Scott's property. Before the interview was over, detectives asked Callum if he and Ewan killed Scott Guy. Callum said he hadn't been involved. Months before Scott's death, he'd actually moved 16 hours away. However, Callum said he had a feeling Ewan was the one who killed Scott. Prior to their interview with Callum, detectives had considered the possibility that Ewan was responsible for the arson and vandalism on Scott's property, but they never had any proof. Detectives felt like Callum's admissions were the final puzzle piece they needed to solve Scott's case. They theorized that with the tension between Ewan and Scott at an all-time high in 2008, Ewan devised a plan to drive Scott and Kylie off the farm with arson and vandalism. But when that didn't work, Ewan moved to plan B, murdering Scott. But were detectives right about their theory? It's not as cut and dry as things may seem, and the whirlwind that was about to begin was full of more twists and turns than anyone could have predicted. But that's going to have to wait until next week. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Scott's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. We go live regularly on TikTok and Instagram to discuss all episodes and any other true crime cases on your mind. So follow me at the Heather Ashley on either and tap on the bell icon so you can be notified when we go live. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, and it is time to share a review that made my whole entire day. This one is from Lauren Caceres, and it says, I feel like I'm just having a conversation with a friend when I listen to Heather. By the way, we are all best friends here. I love her unapologetic attitude and her realness. Her stories are concise yet packed full of all the important details. Definitely not drawn out and no small talk. I look forward to listening every week. And Lauren, I... Sometimes I still can't believe that anybody listened to the podcast. I didn't have any plans when I made this. So this is incredible. I look forward to you listening every week. I look forward to everyone listening every week. You guys are the best. And Big Mad True Crime 100% has the best listeners on the planet. I don't know how we did this, but I love you guys and I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Lauren, for taking the time out of your day to do something kind. Please know that I love you and you are my favorite person today. Okay, bye.